0: Matthew chapter 5 these first four chapters in Matthew we've seen the call of Jesus, the birth of Jesus the the anointing of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus, we've seen him calling his first disciples in the last chapter in chapter 4 and now we've seen just at the end of chapter 4 the official beginning of his ministry as he stands up in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth and proclaims the day of the Lord's favour, or the year of the Lord's favour, which basically was he was proclaiming a jubilee year. And if you want to catch up with that, about what a jubilee year is, you can catch up with the teaching online. So, here we are at the start of Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7, probably if we could live our lives by Matthew 5, 6 and 7, it would be a wonderful world we live in. Um, Even if we could only keep it on the outside, it would be a wonderful world that we live in. Someone once said that if we only had Matthew 5, 6 and 7 out of the whole Bible, it would still tell us enough about the character and the love of God. Would, in some measure, the rest of it wouldn't be required, although that could be debatable. But here we are at the start of Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus has called his disciples, or the main core, the core group. But please remember as we go through 5, 6 and 7 here, that there were many disciples at this point in time, there were many who would follow him. They may only have come for the day, or they may have come for a couple of days, but right at the end of chapter 4, Jesus had called them by name to actually follow him. It was a calling that was put upon the lives of Peter and Andrew and James and John, leave what you're doing and come and follow me. It wasn't a case of, do you fancy a day out with Jesus? It was a case of, do you want to commit your life to the way that I would have you go? So they left apparently very successful businesses as fishermen and came away and followed Jesus. How their family felt about that, I'm not really very sure. I don't know how a father who had brought his sons up to be fishermen and who had worked hard to give them a living and a business and suddenly they had disappeared. But here we have, at the start of chapter 5 in verse 1, there's obviously a great crowd following Jesus here and when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now there's a bit of sort of jobiety about how many disciples were here. Were this just the twelve, or was this more than the twelve? I believe they went up on the mountainside and sat down to teach because it would be easier for the people to be spread out below them and to be looking up to him. He was good at physics, he could organise the sort of sound, the acoustics of the place. So there may well have been the twelve close by him, but there was probably a much larger crowd on the side of this mountain, just overlooking Capernaum, just above the Sea of Galilee. He saw the crowds, he didn't want to get away from the crowds, he just wanted to make space for the crowds. He was probably... As I say, he had made his home in in Capernaum. And he was probably in Capernaum at the time when this large crowd started to gather. And it was getting a bit awkward because they were round corners and inside buildings and up on tops of roofs. So he withdrew and he went outside of Capernaum, went up the side of the mountain, and the people would naturally be drawn to him. Because Jesus was radical in everything that he did, there was not a thing that he said that the Pharisees or the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the time, actually agreed with. He was one of these people who spoke from the heart and spoke it as it should be. So he went up on the mountainside and sat down. Now, the very fact he's sitting down, as i said to you before, this was then, he was telling the people that as a rabbi, he was about to teach them something quite profound and quite formal. This was his formal mode of teaching. Most of the rabbis would sit down and the disciples would stand around them. Opposite to today, you guys sit and I stand. And uh, I think we should change that. (laughs) (laughs) But the very fact that it tells us here that he sat down. Sat down would give us the impression, Matthew was giving us the impression here, that this was a formal teaching. Just the same as we talk about... We actually bring it into our modern day language. We talk about universities that had been seats of learning. Mm-hmm. We talk about prefer- professors taking the chair of a certain department. And that's exactly where this came from. It, w- it was a, a formal way of saying, I'm about to do something which is really quite profound in the teaching sense. I'm, I'm going to sit down and teach you something. And so he did that. But included in this, and it's not... In the NIV translation. But it's quite important. Included in that. He sat down and began to teach them it said. And in some of your translations it said. He he opened his mouth. And began to teach. And he opened his mouth. That term. In the Greek. That Matthew wrote it in Greek. Remember that this is a kind of crazy situation. That Jesus is actually talking and speaking in Aramaic. Which is a form of Hebrew. But Matthew being the tax collector and being the the record keeper that he was he would be fluent in Greek so he was writing this in Greek so he was taking words that Jesus said in Aramaic and transposing them into the Greek as he wrote them he may not have written them down at this point in time but at some point in the future at this point in time he was probably sitting up the back taking notes if you want to call it that but he opened his mouth as a term here that again speaks of this sitting down of this something that was really going to be profound, something that was going to be the heart of Jesus this, this was him about to really speak truly from the heart, really possibly for the first time he was actually going to open up and really share what God's character and God's will for people's lives is and he began to teach them, now I don't want you to get into all the sort of fancy grammar but there are two tenses in the past tense. One is the Aorist and the other is the Imperfect. They're both in the past tense now. Aorist is something that speaks of something that was done once. Like if I said that Gordon closed the door. He did it once. If he did it more than once, he's got OCD. Um, <laughs> but that's the, that's the idea. In the Aorist tense, it's, it's that something that was done once. That, that, that Brian walked down the street done finished in the past where the imperfect tense and this is what this is written in and the imperfect tense that, that he began to teach them was something that was continuous something that was always done this is the way not just he taught them once but he taught them many times this way so this was the way that Matthew has put this down in the Greek that this wasn't a time when Jesus only mentioned this this was something that would continue And continue, and had had continued in the past. So Jesus was about to reveal His heart, and He was about to reinforce it continually. And we talk about this section now as being the Beatitudes. Beatitudes, translated, just really means the blessings or the blessednesses. Probably better sticking to the blessings. It's no so good with the blessednesses. And you know, many people have said, Let let the beatitudes be our attitudes. You know, when we look at Matthew five, six and seven, Jesus laid out a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff that would that would that would challenge a lot of people. And so as we get to the start of this, Jesus said to them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we look at these beatitudes, we look at them. They all start the same way. Blessed are and the word are there, if you've got a, a translation where it's in italics, it, it doesn't actually exist in there. It's been inserted, supposedly to give us some sort of sense to the word. It would be a bit silly saying blessed the poor in spirit, but it could be blessed the poor in spirit. But it's, it's inserted. Again, I say to you, this was spoken in Aramaic, but it was written in Greek. And here, are is written. And it actually, the whole... Blessed are comes out as oh the blessedness of that's actually the translation of it oh the blessedness of and you see it there in Psalm 1 right at the start of the Psalms where it says blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly oh the blessedness of the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly it's not something that's going to happen for you Afterwards, Or it's not something that you have to wait for in the future. This in some measure is a proclamation. It's an exclamation be Jesus. Oh how blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You think to yourself. You know. How blessed can that be? Blessed are the poor in spirit. But this blessedness. The blessedness that Jesus talks about here. The Greek word, and you're probably familiar with it, because it was named. Uh, the man that used to be the Prime Minister of uh, of Cyprus took the name Macarios, and uh, Macarios, in the Greek, it actually did, it was used to describe Cyprus. That was what they used it for. It was they used the feminine noun, La makarios to describe Cyprus. Now. To get this word blessedness across to you in this, what I want to say is that Matthew used this word Macarius because it was used to describe <coughs> this island of Cyprus. Cyprus, they thought, was the beautiful place, the wonderful place, the place of joy, with its beautiful fertile fields and its, and its beautiful blue sea. There was nothing that Cyprus needed. It was all self-contained. It was almost like a wee secret kingdom. And that in some measure is what Jesus was trying to get across to the people. Oh, the Macarius of the poor in spirit. Oh, the blessedness. Oh, the, 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 the fact that you don't need anything else in this situation. You just need that blessing. It doesn't matter. It's not, it's not reliant upon anything else. Like Cyprus, they considered it to be an enclave in itself. It didn't need anything from the outside. And really... Jesus was saying, the joy of the Christian, the Macarius, beautiful and safe, not dependent upon outside influences. So this blessedness was not something that you got by by chance or by happenstance. In fact, in the English, we some people translate it happiness. But the prefix hap actually means by chance. So happiness is something by chance. This Jesus was trying to describe to people. It doesn't come by chance. This is a blessedness that that God brings that is self-contained that doesn't depend upon outside influences the joy of the Lord that type of blessedness. In fact, John 16 and 22 says that and I'll paraphrase it no one will take your joy away or your blessedness or no one will take your makarios away it's the same word it's that self-contained joy that only God can put in your life. And that was the start of what Jesus was about to tell us about the character of God. Oh the blessedness, oh the macarius of the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's a strange blessing right of poverty, of spirit. But again, I'm trying to teach you this. There's, there's two words in the Greek, penes and tokos, which mean poor. Now, that first word, penis, means a man who works for a living but never quite seems to have anything extra. He just works away. He's got sufficiency but there's never anything left over. He's poor in that sense. In the physical sense he's poor because he never manages to get beyond his daily bread, if you want to call it that. He never got a shilling to put past that's that first word penis tokos which is the word that's used here blessed of the poor in spirit the tokos, this is the word in the Greek for poor, this is another word meaning poor, but it means absolutely and totally destitute nothing, nothing at all, it talks about a man who has absolutely nothing, now the word if you go back to the root, it actually says that it's, it's so, it bends people over and it drives them to their knees. So blessed are the, the poor in spirit, those who have been driven to their knees. But the Hebrew word here for poor is abion. And that word means the same as this Tokos, a man who is absolutely desolate, desperate, got nothing, to the point where he puts his total trust in God. And between, if you, I don't want to make this a kind of grammar lesson, but between the idea that Jesus spoke Abion to the people, and Matthew translated it Tokos in the Greek, he was understanding that, Jesus was trying to tell us that blessed is the man who is destitute spiritually to the point where he wants to put his total trust in God. He has no alternative. And I suppose I'm going to read this this, uh, beatitude to you out of what I've kind of told you there already. Oh, the blessedness of the one who realises he is spiritually destitute and puts his whole trust in God thus gaining citizenship of heaven. And in some measure, that first beatitude speaks to us of the beginning of the Christian walk. That recognising that spiritually we've got nothing to offer. It's nothing to do, please, it's nothing to do with emotions, it's nothing to do with the physical, it's to do with the spiritual. Emotionally, we, we can be all over the place and yet that blessedness, that joy that God brings into our lives can it's self-contained. It is not affected by what happens outside, what comes into our lives, what happens in our emotions, what happens in our, in our physical life. So all oh, the blessedness of the one who realizes he is spiritually destitute and puts his whole trust in God, thus gaining the citizenship of heaven. And you could say that's what we did. That's what we did when we became Christians. We recognise our spiritual poverty. Lord, I've got nothing to offer. Will you forgive me for my sins and take me as your child? And he did. And this second beatitude starts the same way: "Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted." And the word here again for "mourn" is the strongest word. I mean, the Greeks, the Greeks had about five or six words for everything, but this word that they use for mourning here is the strongest possible word you can get. It's a mourning for the dead. It's a mourning for those who have passed away. Excuse me, in the Septuagint, that's a, a, a fancy word for the Old Testament Greek Bible, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament. When Jacob thought that Joseph was dead in Genesis, this is the, the word that was used in the Greek. That, that, you know, Jacob was absolutely mournful. Mournful to the point where it can't be contained that's what the word really means that it's an outpouring of grief just the same as you would see when <clears throat> when we lose anyone that's close to us we can't contain it the, the tears well up, the heart breaks the whole emotions just break down that's the type of mourning that Jesus is talking about here it's an amazing blessedness in some measure because This is sorrow at its deepest. And we have to learn from it to get the blessing from it. But how do we learn from it? How do we learn from sorrow? How do we learn from mourning? There's an old Arab saying that says that all the sunshine just makes a desert. And it's true. If you take a piece of land and the sun just shines on it all the time, all you're going to get is a desert. Nothing's going to grow, nothing's going to happen. And then sometimes that's the way we look at our lives. We think, well, we want a bit of sunshine in our lives. But you know, for other things to happen in our lives, sometimes there's got to be rain. There's certainly things that only the rain can bring. Fruit will not grow without the rain. Yeah, it needs the sunshine. But it doesn't just need the sunshine. It needs the rain as well. It needs the bad times as well as the good times. Sorrow of puts us in touch with our fellow human beings. It brings, in some measure, as I always talk about, it puts our ducks in a row. It makes us realise what life's priorities are. That we look at somebody that's died or we've lost that great morning and we think, you know, life's too short to be petty. Life's too short just to look for sunshine in their lives all the time. The greatest relationships I've known over the years have been built up through sorrow, through bad times. When people get close to each other and when they get close to God. A friend of mine who lost his son many years ago and his son was only 30 years old and he just died. But what an opportunity it was, even in the midst of the Sadness to comfort them, and for that bond of friendship to grow even greater I mean this is a, a guy that I've known since I was at primary school and yet very much it was a a surface thing there was never any great depth to it, although we were, we were good pals good acquaintances when everything's fine we just skate over the surface of life but when sorrow comes it drives us into the depths of life The place where we have to learn what it is that we need. And you know, if we can learn the lesson out of sorrow, it will produce in you a great beauty and a strength that you never knew you had. Something that God can plant there. This morning can be related in this beatitude to the suffering of others. We can look at it from a point of view that blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Mourn for what? The suffering of others. Yes, we all mourn for the suffering of others. But, you know, that real heartfelt, deep emotion that runs to the point where we're just we're forced to do something about it. And I don't know whether you ever remember there was a Prime Minister in this country years ago called Lord Shaftesbury way back in the 19th century. But as a young boy he was walking down the street, 12 year old he was, and he came from a very privileged background. I mean, he was obviously the son of a lord and inherited the title. But he was walking down the road one day and he saw a pauper's funeral of their child. And there was four drunk men pushing a barrel with a half-baked coffin on it with this child inside it. And they were singing all sorts of ribald songs and, and just laughing and joking. And When they got to the top of the hill, the cat kind of capsized and the the box broke open and the body fell out. And many people who were there at the time kind of turned away in disgust and many sort of said, well, what do you expect from people like that? But at that point, Lord Shaftesbury decided in his own heart, at 12-year-old, I'm going to do something about this. And he did. He was one of the most philanthropic men probably whoever lived, and as, far as, as far as being able to reach out to the poor. and, and uh, He was instrumental in the Corn Laws, etc. being repealed and, and people being given a decent living. And his determination to help, a great Christian attribute. It is a great Christian attribute. But as Jesus spoke these words, I don't believe that he was majoring on the fact that we should help each other, though of course we should. I think he was majoring on the fact that he was referring to man's own internal sin. After the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the destitute of spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You come to that place of salvation and then comes a point where you think about your life as it's passed and the desolation that you've created because of your sinfulness. Our own struggle against sin. What was Jesus' first words And his gospel. Repent. Turn away from your sin. We can't repent. Until we realize. That our sin. Is terrible. And that we mourn for it. That it comes to a point where. There's such a mourning and a sorrow in us. That it wells up. That it's uncontainable. That that word. That we spoke about earlier in the Greek. We can't contain it. We come in tears before the Lord looking for that forgiveness. The things that happen in our lives bring us face to face with our own sin and ultimately, ultimately if we recognise the wrongness of our own sin the place where our own (coughs) spirit is at that point in time it will bring us face to face with the cross, the remedy for sin the only remedy for sin. There is no other name under heaven and earth by which a man might be saved except the name of Jesus. No matter how we try and make up with people, no matter how we try and repair the damage that we've done, the only thing that can take away our sin is the blood of Jesus. That perfect, beautiful life, the most beautiful life ever lived, smashed to death by sin on a cross. But, through the resurrection, afterwards comes the comfort. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. When we mourn for our sin, when we realise who we are and how short we fall in God's requirements of us, when that mourning comes, we see the cross, we see the empty tomb and we shout, Hallelujah, my sins are forgiven. The sins that were killing us. The sins that were killing us. And we're talking in the spiritual here, remember. Sin can kill you physically, yes it can. But we're talking about spiritual here. The things that were killing us spiritually were finally put to death on Calvary's cross. I want to say that to you this morning. Blessed are you who have mourned. For your sins are passed over. Mourn for them no more. Your sins are forgiven. There's a way forward for you. There's a glorious resurrection. There's a born again experience that raises you up to a new life. Just as Jesus was raised to a new life, so can we be. And I suppose we could put the beatitude like this. Blessed is the man who mourns over his life. Sorry. Blessed is the man who mourns over his life, killing sin and turning to God, receives comfort. In the life-giving blood of Jesus. And that beatitude. Of course. If we look at the first one. As a coming to Christ. That one is the forgiveness of sin. The continuation of the Christian walk. We come to Christ. We see our sin. We mourn for our sin. We recognize our poverty of spirit. And then we come to this next one. Blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. Now. I don't know what you think of the word meek nowadays. But it's changed the way it's thought about. Just in the same way as if I talk about things that are gay today. I'm not talking about things that are funny or laughter. It's changed its meaning. People have brought its meaning round to mean a, a different thing. Today we talk about meekness. When we talk about meekness, we may be thinking somebody that's a bit wimpish and a bit servile they're a bit spineless, maybe even a bit insipid you know, they're a bit meek it's not a word that we use a lot but when we see it written down well, certainly that's what I would think of those kind of things, you know somebody that's kind of lacking in fibre a bit of strength there but this word that Matthew uses here in the Greek, praus, it describes a strong and virtuousness in a person it describes somebody who's got that moral fibre that strength within them. <clears throat> Don't know where it comes from, but that's, that's, what he, that's what he's describing. That's what he's talking about, meekness. Aristotle took this word and he used it to talk about a happy medium. If I give you the example, he talked about at one end of the scale in regards to money, we've got somebody who's a spendthrift. And whenever we think of spendthrifts, we think about somebody that just, you know, money for nothing, checks for free, you know. And at the other end of the spectrum, we've got the miser, you know, the short arms and the deep pockets. <laughs> but Aristotle used this word prowess to describe the happy medium. And his happy medium between the spendthrift and the miser was the generous man. Somebody who is not keen to spend on rubbish. But somebody who is not keen to withdraw their help. The person who has that generosity of spirit. That is the word that Aristotle used to describe meek. That was a meek man. A man who was in the happy medium. and The man who could control what he did. (coughs) But he took it further. (coughs) Excuse me. He took the <coughs> can I get rid of this. go excuse me he took it <coughs> Aye. took it further to describe the emotions of man, not just their, their physical characteristics but the emotions of man. He took it further in the emotions and he talked about anger because probably anger is one of the the, the the most demonstrated emotions in this world. Much greater than love has ever demonstrated. Anger is demonstrated. And if you, if you don't agree with that, just look at what we're, we're remembering this morning. All those who have died in the many world wars, in the many wars that are still going on. They're not produced by love. They're produced by anger and hatred. So anger, Aristotle thought, was one of the most readily demonstrated Emotions of a man. And he talked about this again... As being... Somebody who was... Always angry. And somebody who was... Never angry. And his happy medium in this was... Somebody who was... Anger. Angry at the right time. And never angry at the wrong time. And that was how he described it. And in some measure I suppose... That's what Jesus was trying to say. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who have this balance. That they know what they're doing. That they can control their emotions. Now that's not something that nowadays we would associate (coughs) with meekness. But that's the way it's described here in the Greek language. Selfish anger is always wrong. When we get angry because people upset us, that's always wrong. We should never be angry with people just because they upset us. Because that's who we should be. That's who we should be as Christians. Selfish anger, but anger directed toward injustice can bring huge changes in people's lives. I want to go back to Lord Shaftesbury there. When that young boy saw what was happening with that, that funeral if you want to call it that, He may not have realised it but there was a great anger in him. An anger in him that said I'm going to sort this. I'm not going to let this happen anymore. It might not have been an outburst of anger but there was an anger there. There was a determination there that said I'm entitled to be angry when I look at this. I'm not looking at it in a selfish way. I'm looking at it from the point of view of the injustice that's been done to these people. So angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. The same word prowess that we're talking about here for meek. It also describes an animal which has been trained by its master. If you go to a dog and tell it to sit and it sits. You tell it to give it a point, it gives it a paw. It's usually looking for something right enough. But, <coughs> but that type of training that it does it without complaint. It does it without Reason it doesn't sit down and say, "Well, what am I getting if I give you a paw? What am I getting if I sit properly? What am I getting if I bark at burglars?" Mm-hmm. It's that's the word prowess. It's, it's been under the control of a master, and in some measure, you know, it, it really does work in with the fact that, that if we put ourselves under God's control, whatever He asks us to do, we do without question. If he asks us to get determined and angry about a certain situation. And I don't mean the shouting and violent anger. I mean like Lord Shaftesbury did. But looking at something with a determination and saying, this is wrong. It has to be changed. That's the sort of anger. And this control brought about by God that we're talking about with these animals This control, if we allow God to take control of our lives, it makes us well-balanced people. It makes us people of ethical and moral character. Because we're submitted to the Master's commands without question. But it also keeps us humble. To be submitted to someone else and to be able to do their will without saying yea nor nay to it, makes us teachable makes us people who can say, I don't know everything. There are people that know things better than me and I'm quite prepared to learn from them. So it also describes this humility, the teachableness, not to be contentious or belligerent, but to be able to submit to God. How many times have I been unteachable? I've not wanted to listen to what people tell me. And what does it do? It makes me angry. Why? Because I get selfish. I know better than you. And it makes me angry in the wrong sense of the word. It makes me selfishly angry that I'm not getting my way. We need to be submitted to God at that point in time. So let's sum this up. Let's try and put this beatitude into modern language. We've looked at all this thing with prowess, we've looked at all the humility, we've looked at all the submission. We've looked at the, the happy medium. So here we have this. How about this? Blessed is the man who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. Who has every instinct and passion and impulse under control because he himself is God-controlled. Who has the humility to realise his own weaknesses. Such a man is a king amongst men. For theirs is a the kingdom. So this poverty of spirit leads us to a mourning for our sin. It allows God to build in us a meekness, that well-balancedness that only God can bring, which really in some measure can be summarised as great power under a greater control. When we want to blaze and rage, then God says, no, no. You're a man that's never angry at the wrong time person. You're never angry or not angry at the right time. So this whole start of the Christian walk rolls on here into these Beatitudes. It starts to build that Christian character. When we come from that poverty of spirit and we realise who we are. When we come to that place of mourning and we realise what we've done through our sinfulness. When we accept and realise that there there is a a redemption for sin, when we see the cross and the resurrection, we can be raised up, we can put ourselves in that place where God controls us. Controls us to the point where we become that meek person, that well-balanced person, that blessed person. Oh the blessedness! And we can shout it and proclaim it as an exclamation. That's as far as I want to go this morning. So let's just think in these things. And let's pray and ask God's blessing upon us. Father, we just thank you and praise you for your goodness, Lord. We thank you. We thank you that you are a God who just reveals your own heart to us, Lord. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Lord, how we thank you for that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Father, you're such a comfort to us. You're such a comfort to us in our time of need, Lord. Help us to be that people who are obedient to you, Lord, who don't question what you ask us to do. We may not understand it all, Lord, but we know inherently that it's right. We want to be those meek people, those well-balanced people, Lord, those people in whom everything is under control because we're under God's control. So be with us, Lord, as we study through this, Father. Help us to understand the nature and the character of our loving Heavenly Father brought to us through the life and the words of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen.